Hi everyone and welcome to Dead to Rights. Spring has sprung and the news has been newsy all week long. As of this morning, the suspense is palpable. Unless you've been living under a rock, you know what I'm talking about. The political international tension is tangible as we wait for whatever findings will be made public, if any, from the long-anticipated Mueller report. The past few years have embodied a real-life political thriller of epic magnitude. The challenges presented by these times to thriller writers is hard to overstate. How do we create fiction that A, is careful not to plagiarize reality, and B, can exceed the compelling narrative we've been following on the news without diving into the realm of the terminally incredible? Today we'll be speaking with an author who has dared to plunge headlong into the arena of the political thriller. We'll be speaking with the author of the thriller Last Gasp, Mr. Howard Levine. Frank Tedeschi's niece is dead, one of thousands of victims of a terrorist attack which has been laid at the feet of Islamic radicals by a right-wing U.S. government. Frank, based on a chance encounter, is one of the very few people who question the government's explanation. He's a Vietnam veteran who wants nothing more than to live without further controversy or conflict. Can he and his grieving brother Rob, a detective with the NYPD, obtain the necessary evidence to uncover the truth in the face of scorn and incredulity? Can they overcome their long-term estrangement to work together, given that they are putting their lives in danger? In Last Gasp, a novel that resonates with today's politics, the answers to these questions unfold in a way that mingles personal and societal issues and intertwines the past and present while moving relentlessly forward. And now, I'm delighted to bring you our interview with Howard Levine, author of Last Gasp, Black Opal Books, 2018. Howard, how are you today? I'm fine. How are you doing? Very good, very good. I've been looking at your book on Amazon. It looks really interesting. Um, Frank Tedeschi's niece is dead, one of thousands of victims of a terrorist attack, which has been laid at the feet of Islamic radicals by a right-wing U.S. government. That's just fascinating. I like that. Um, tell us a little bit about your protagonist and his brother, Rob. Okay, well, Frank, who we can say is the main character, uh, he's a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he operates a hardware store in West Chester, northern suburbs of New York City. And um, he's kind of estranged from his brother Rob in the war itself when Frank, coming back from Vietnam, was protesting the war. And Rob, as a police officer, was uh, sort of fighting with protesters. Um, and their divergent views on that sort of fueled a, an estrangement which grew over the years. Um, now, the Rob's daughter, um, as you'll see in the book, um, dies in a terrorist attack, which um, the government blames, as you stated, on Islamic terrorists. Frank because 
the actual perpetrator of the terrorist attack was an employee in his hardware store, talked about doing that, and Frank assumed he was joking. But once the thing actually happens, um, and the government blames it on Islamic terrorists, uh, Frank, Frank suspects, particularly when his employee disappears, doesn't come to work the next day, that the government is not telling the truth about this. And Rob's daughter, having died in the attack, they determined to try to find the perpetrator and prove the truth about what happened. So, um, okay. yeah. So I, I think that Frank is really trying to make a concerted effort to stay away from any type of controversy at this point in his life, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, he just wants to live in peace with his wife. His sons are both in college. He wishes that he had a better relationship with his brother. But really, you know, getting involved in, in a mission which can endanger his life, it's the last thing he wants to do. Is this your first novel, and is it going to be part of a series, Howard? Uh, it's not my first novel. My first novel uh, is entitled Leaving This Life Behind. That came out in uh, 2001. Mm -hmm. And it has nothing to do with the current novel, and I'm not really planning to make a series out of this. I sort of feel like the tale has been told regarding Frank and his brother. Okay, so it's going to be a standalone. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I yeah, yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask you, though, about it is uh, what brought you to this particular genre of, of terror? First of all, let me ask, is this a domestic terrorist attack or is it international? It's a domestic terrorist attack. It's basically the perpetrator uh, is kind of something of a religious zealot. And the terrorist attack is perpetrated at a rock and roll concert given by a band that is, is heavy metal and considered to be very blasphemous. Okay, so. Okay. Um, and the idea then, uh, there's, there's a motivation in, in terms of showing that, that blasphemy where, where um, evangelical Christianity is concerned, that, that blaspheming uh, the principles that they are espousing is something that, that can be dangerous. And also, there's a motivation in that the attack can be blamed on Islamic terrorists. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so you sort of have a, a collusion, if you will, between evangelicals and a right-wing government, mm -hmm. which we, could, mm -hmm. we see nowadays very much in our politics. Yes, yes, it's very timely. I, I was going to say that. Um, is, what was the inspiration to bring you into that particular genre? Because that's a tough genre. It's not like your typical gumshoe kind of a mystery, so to speak. It's it's very raw politics to a lot of people. It's very, um, I would think it would be a pretty difficult genre to, to broach. Right. And, you know, you're exactly right that it is a very politically charged novel and very much in tune with, with today's politics. But the 
I wasn't really intending to write a thriller or a political thriller. Basically, I just had an idea. You know, what if what if a right wing government staged a terrorist attack? Um, mm-hmm. And we've seen in the past and nowadays uh, government deceptions. You know, a war started in Iraq based mm-hmm. on misinformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that idea is not that far afield. And what, no, what, it's not. Yeah, and, and what's no, that? it's not. But I'm um, I'm thinking in particular of attacks on domicile buildings in uh, Russia that were staged to look like Chechnyan attacks. Right. right. Um, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's definitely not unheard of internationally or domestically. Right. And, you know, the, the way that I write, again, is basically I get a central idea. And when that, that idea came up, I felt it was something that I could work with. And, you know, the characters and the twists and turns of the plots sort of unfolded as I went along. Um, But again, I I didn't set out to write a thriller. Uh, Leaving This Life Behind and other novels that I've written that are not yet published, none of them are quote unquote thrillers, although I feel with all of them, they are readable and the pages turn. Mm -hmm. Which is the most important thing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, When did, uh, now I'm just trying to, Taking a little bit of a look at the Amazon page, and it's telling me Black Opal Books is your publisher. Yeah, and Black Opal Books has been very, you know, I was very happy with their editorial process, with their production of the novel, um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, their accessibility. They're in Oregon. I'm in Maryland. Did they they design the cover? They did. The cover is actually actually very good it speaks well for their work um very interesting cover i like that um not that you're supposed to judge a book by its cover but you know um here we are right (laughs) yeah i think that people often do um so what's next on the agenda for your writing world well i'm currently working on a novel in which a retired couple in arizona rescues two undocumented miners from the desert and attempts to help them reunite with their father up north. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that novel is coming along. But again, uh, I feel that, you know, it speaks to what we see in America today, yes. political situation. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It is. It's a again very politically timely so uh what what kind of expectation do you have in terms of completion for it um well i'm up close to page 100 now mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and i could be moving faster but i'm spending a lot of time um i'm doing book signings interviews um so the promotion of the of, of last gasp is something that you know, takes up a fair amount of time. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, fortunately, mm-hmm. I'm tired, so I can do both. But oh, oh, that's true. Yeah. Terrific. That's terrific. Yeah, that, that does free up the time. You know, regarding Last Gas, um, I think it's, it's somewhat unusual in the thriller genre in that 
the perpetrator of the central crime in the novel is known right from the beginning. That's how the novel starts. And the suspense mm. in terms of of unraveling what happened to him and locating him, uh, the main characters pursuing him at the risks of their own lives because the government is aware that, that Frank and his brother are, are trying to prove the truth about what mm. happened. And you've got another layer, another character-driven layer here about uh, the reunification of Frank and Rob, which is uh, quite a human thing, too. Um, I'm not going to ask you to give away the end there, but uh, I like that element, that dynamic that you've added in. I'm always drawn to strong characters and what happens in their lives. You know, I think a lot of readers are. I think it cements. Uh, it's important to have a good plot that keeps the pages turning, but if you don't have characters, it loses me. I agree 100%. And um, I feel that, you know, the characters, the main characters in uh, Last Guest are very are credible and real. And the schism between them that, you know, they're trying to work out as they're trying to work together, um, it's, it's something that's real. And that, you know, anyone who has siblings um, and, and they've had some kind of rift with that sibling or gone in different directions can relate to that. Yeah, yeah. They always say, you know, families are not, they're not always easy. They're really not always easy. And um, I love to see families coming together and, and uh, ironing out differences, especially now, because I, I think that in Western politics in general, I mean, I'm in Canada, but, but in Western politics in general, we're seeing rifts that are really brutal in our society and family are being torn apart friendships are being torn apart we've got to find a way to disagree and uh that sounds trite and it sounds overly simplistic i know especially um i can't always follow it either i see some people posting things that that um i'm like no i don't want to know that person you know <laughs> I, I really don't so you know i'm guilty of uh giving into the rifts as well but there has to be a way to come together there just has to be. Yeah, I, I agree. And I agree that, you know, nowadays more than ever, uh, rifts over politics, beliefs, you know, are sharper and more powerful than they used to be. But I also think you're right in that, you know, family is extremely important. And mm -hmm. in the novel, Rob, the NYPD detective, turns to his brother to help him. Mm -hmm. I mean, the pull of family uh, when the chips are down, so to speak, is still yeah. there very much. Yeah. And as my husband always tells our three children, your practice and how to be a social human being starts with your siblings. It starts with your family. And if you can agree to disagree with your siblings and still love each other and honor each other and help each other, it's going to take you out into the world with that kind of attitude. You you don't have to stand down from your principles. You just have to be able to admit that other people have principles too. Right, right. And and one of the one of the things that happens in the novel is that their their principles and their beliefs sort of they still have their differences, but there, there's a greater common ground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. they're working yeah. together, but also. 
they're kind of seeing where each other is coming from a little more than they did in the past. Yeah. And age hopefully will do that too. It doesn't always, but hopefully age gives us a little bit of that longer view too. Okay. So that that's what I hope as I get older, as this old girl gets older, you know. <laughs> you gotta hope for some wisdom, otherwise, you know. What the hell have you got, right? <laughs> you know? That's true. true. Anyways, the book looks really interesting. It's titled Last Gasp. It's available in Kindle and paperback. I'm looking at it right now on Amazon.com. So look for it by Howard Levine. That's L-E-V-I-N-E. And because uh, we do have a few ways to spell that. And you should be able to find it pretty easily. I found it pretty easily on Amazon. Uh, Howard, thank you so much for talking to us today. Our thanks go out to Howard Levine, the author of Last Gasp, Black Opal Books, available on Amazon, Smashwords, and other great book and ebook retailers. And now, stay with us for my reading of The Bench Rests, a short story by Rosemary O'Bear, featured in 13 O'Clock, the anthology by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2015. Rosemary O'Bear is the author of 17 books, among them the acclaimed Ellis Portal Mystery Series. Rosemary is a two-time winner of the Arthur Ellis Award for Crime Fiction, winning in both the novel and short story categories. She's a popular teacher and speaker, as well as a member of the Crime Writers of Canada and the Mystery Writers of America. She conducts a much-in-demand writer's retreat at Loyalist College in Belleville, Ontario, each summer. Her short stories, essays and poems, and reviews have been widely published in Canada for many years. She has had four volumes of poetry published. Rosemary is an active member of the Arts and Letters Club of Toronto, where she promotes Canadian writing and encourages other writers like herself. Her latest novel is number six in the Ellis Portal series, titled Don't Forget You Love Me, Carrick Publishing. Please also look for her latest book of poetry, Strong, Certain, and Alone, Poems in the Voice of Sir Isaac Newton, which I'm sure you're going to love, and that's also Carrick Publishing. You can find Rosemary at www.rosemaryobert.com, and her last name is A-U-B-E-R-T. You can find her at her Amazon author page, on Facebook, or at the Maydams of Mayhem website. The Bench Rests by Rosemary Aubert He'd only come to the courthouse to bring his wife her lunch which had been confiscated at security, of course. He should have foreseen that. He checked the impulse to shake his head in self-disgust. Yet again, he'd neglected to weigh the new against the old, the probable against the dead certain. Walking slowly down the long, slippery hallway that led toward the up escalator, he tried to concentrate. What exactly had his wife told him about lunchtime? That her testimony might be finished by then? It had been two or three years, but he still remembered that the schedule of the court was as wily as a bronco, no knowing what time she'd really be done. He mourned the loss of that confiscated lunch, though. He could still make a pretty mean sandwich. 
He'd even remembered not to include anything that smelled strong. At the last minute, he'd added a nice apple. He'd hoped that the required noise of crunching wouldn't embarrass his wife if she had to eat in the company of strangers. Suddenly, an old memory flitted through his brain. He was seated on the bench. The court clerk, in her smart black robe, was directly in front of him, down a level, so that he was looking at the top of her head. He could see that she was pretending to annotate the day's docket, but what she was really doing was silently unwrapping a chocolate bar. The smell of it wafted up to his nostrils. He could stop the proceedings and get her to surrender it. Judge Marshall, come for a little visit? It's so nice to see you. The voice cut through his daydream like a shiv. He turned and almost banged into a young lawyer with an armful of files. It surprised the old judge to see cardboard folders, pieces of paper sticking out of them willy-nilly, and a messy display of mismanaged paperwork. He thought they'd have done away with all that paper by now, put the records on the Internet or something. "'You've got yourself quite a pile of documents there,' he said to the young man, stalling for time to remember his name. Murkovich, the lawyer said, as if he knew what the judge was thinking. I'm Dalton Murkovich. I worked with you on the Blaine case. For three years, actually. The judge nodded as if he recalled the whole thing. All he really remembered was that Blaine was a loser who had got what was coming to him for having killed his best friend in a fit of rage. He glanced at Murkovich. Prosecution or defense? He tried a fishing tactic. Well, he said, I guess our man's done a bit of time since you and I laid eyes on each other, eh? Murkovich nodded, smiled. Prosecution, the old judge decided. He nodded and smiled too. Squinting, just enough to make out the number over the nearby courtroom door, but not enough to make Murkovich pity him, he gave the door a good push and let himself into the courtroom. It still smelled the same. The heat of the old, cranky boiler system. The sweat of fear. The mustiness of papers long trapped in boxes and drawers. The hint of camphor from the mothballs that kept the legal robes from being eaten. It sounded the same, too. Right down to the audible breathing of the entranced spectators, shifting in their hard wooden pews. Some of them were mere gawkers, but not all. It had long simultaneously amused and appalled Judge Marshall that spectators in murder cases always sat in two distinct groups. Family and friends of the victim. Family and friends of the accused. Like witnesses at a wedding of the damned. Judge Marshall, a pleasure. Come in. This in a hushed whisper from the guard at the door, who wasn't supposed to say anything, just usher people in. The judge raised his hand in a small, silent salute. The courthouse was full of well-meaning lackeys like the doorman. There was no way in the world he was going to remember the name of any of them. He tried to slide soundlessly onto a bench at the back. No such luck. The little metal pull on the zipper of his jacket scraped along the wooden seat. The sound reached the ears of the sitting judge, who turned her eyes on him for just a second, enough to embarrass Judge Marshall into sinking down onto the seat in a slouch. 
But in a minute, he decided that the snooty-looking lady judge hadn't recognized him and wasn't likely to glance his way again. He sat up straighter and took the liberty of having a good look around. The first thing he saw was that he was sitting with the family of the accused. The man in the prisoner's box was surrounded by glass walls, guarded by two strong-looking young officers, and possibly even shackled to the floor, though nobody but the guards would know that. Yet it wasn't hard to see that the offender was a handsome boy, with a distinctive look that Judge Marshall thought marked him as Southern European, Spanish, maybe, or Italian. He'd taken as many ethnic sensitivity training workshops as the next judge, so he knew you weren't supposed to even think about such things. But a lifetime in the law, first as a family lawyer, then in criminal law, then as a prosecutor, and finally as a judge, had taught him to take note of everything. And he noticed that the man in the box looked exactly like the people sitting in the three spectator rows ahead of him. There must be thirty of them. Wait a minute. Roma, that's what they looked like. He was puzzling over whether that might mean anything, trying to remember things he'd lately read about the prejudice against that particular group, when he felt that someone was studying him as intently as he'd been studying his neighbors. Dismissing ridiculous old ideas about the evil eye, he looked up and saw his wife glaring at him right from the witness stand. He'd forgotten that he'd promised her he wouldn't remain in the courtroom during any portion of her testimony. He had very little idea of what she intended to say. They'd agreed to keep it that way. Well, it was too late now, he shrugged his shoulders. But she didn't see the gesture. Her eyes were back on the prosecuting attorney as he shuffled his papers, stalled for effect, spoke. One final thing, Mrs. Marshall. When you entered your garage on the evening in question, were you alone? Yes, my husband always goes grocery shopping with me, but he lags behind, talking to people in the elevator and things like that. I just go ahead and wait for him in the car. Thank you. The lawyer smiled slightly, then dipped his head in the direction of the defense table, as if he were turning over his witness for cross-examination with the greatest of confidence. The defense rose. Yet another young man. They all seemed like children, even the lady judge. Even the grandmothers of the accused were younger than old Judge Marshall and his wife. He almost let out a sigh, but he caught himself in time. You told the court you were headed out to do your grocery shopping the night my client was arrested, did you not? The defense began. He had a grating sort of voice, the kind Judge Marshall knew his wife hated. Yes, she closed her lips tight after that one word. And you also stated that you and your husband usually do your grocery shopping together. Isn't that what you told my friend here? He nodded toward the prosecutor, who did not respond. Yes, but... Judge Marshall tried hard to avoid eye contact. The reason his wife didn't want him in the court while she was testifying was because she felt he'd exercised some sort of undue influence on her. He thought that was batty, but she maintained that after nearly fifty years of marriage, she could tell what he was thinking by the way he was looking at her. 
What he was thinking was this, that the night his wife had seen a dark-haired man running through the parking garage beneath their condo, he had been sick in bed. He knew for certain that he'd stayed home that night because he'd watched the season finale of The Great Race. In fact, much as he would have hated to admit it, he'd really not been that sick. He'd just wanted to see who'd win. The show had been half over when his wife had walked out the door. He was sure of that because the winner hadn't been revealed yet, and he remembered feeling relieved that he could watch the most important part of the show without her interrupting him by talking while he was watching, which was a bad habit of hers. Mrs. Marshall, the lawyer said, swaying a little. Judge Marshall wished the man would stand still, wished he could tell him to do so, as he had so often told lawyers in the old days. Mrs. Marshall, are you sure you allowed yourself to be unaccompanied during those moments in the garage on the evening in question? Don't you think it was rather late to be in an underground garage alone? I beg your pardon? His wife's tone was sharp. Judge Marshall knew what that meant. Her toes had been stepped on. I'm asking you whether you are sure there were no other witnesses present in the parking garage that late at night. You think I'm too old to go out at night? An audible gasp spread across the gathered court, the way a leak of air from a kid's balloon would spread across a condo party room. The head of the presiding judge snapped around. Just answer the question, she warned. By the look on his wife's face, Judge Marshall knew the exact thought that was going through her head. Nobody can tell me what I'm too old or not too old to do. Maybe I can rephrase that a little, the lawyer said. He glanced toward the jury, and for the first time Judge Marshall took a look at the lucky twelve. There was a pretty good mix of male and female, young and old. A witness like his wife was a sure bet with a jury like that. They would believe whatever she said. The old people would identify with her as an equal. The young people would be reminded of their grandmothers, or maybe their ancestors. You state that you entered the parking garage at about 8.30 p.m. You state that you saw a young man who fit the description of my client running through the garage at that time. Is that correct? Yes. The defense attorney grinned. Judge Marshall could only see the lawyer's face because he had turned around to face his client. The accused seemed suddenly frightened. He tried to twist around as if to seek some kind of support from the 30 lookalikes behind him. The lawyer turned back to face Mrs. Marshall. Madam, he said, your testimony puts my client in the garage one full hour before the crime was committed, doesn't it? Judge Marshall saw the look of shock on his wife's face. But the prosecutor rose as if to make an objection. But even the jury seemed to understand that there was nothing to object to. He sat back down. He frantically searched through the papers in front of him with such energy that her honor had to ask him to be quiet. I s saw him running, Mrs. Marshall stuttered. It was him. For a wild instant, Judge Marshall thought his wife was pointing in his direction, but of course she was really pointing to the prisoner. My client doesn't deny being in the garage, ma'am. You're aware of that fact, are you not? 
Yes, but in fact, it is his contention that he left prior to 9 p.m., the time at which the murdered woman made a frantic call to her girlfriend. The defense lawyer paused. Judge Marshall knew the pause was meant to give the jury time to consider what they'd just heard, to come to the only possible conclusion, which was that his wife had just destroyed the state's case. In the silence, Judge Marshall could hear all those old familiar sounds again, the breathing of the people in the court, the useless rifling of papers that could prove nothing, the sigh of relief of a killer about to be let off. And, of course, Judge Marshall knew it was not the prosecutor who had made a mistake. It was his wife. If the murdered woman had been alive at 9 p.m., she would have been alive at the beginning of the Great Race. How long did it take to strangle somebody and then to run down seven flights of stairs, about as long as it took to find out who had won the race? He'd been a judge for a long time. A lot of case law began to reel itself out in his mind, the state versus this one and the state versus that one. Would he stand up like someone out of those old Perry Mason shows and set the record straight? Would he take aside that nice guard who had greeted him at the door and tell him that he needed a word with her honor? Would he send some sort of signal to his wife to alert her to her error and get her to change her testimony? Thinking hard as he was, he missed what happened next, but he soon figured that either the judge or the prosecutor had called for a lunch recess, because the jury filed out, and then his wife left the stand and made her way toward the table where the prosecutor stood. There was some sort of exchange between the lawyer and his wife, but Judge Marshall couldn't hear anything. The lawyer's back was to him, and his wife was so short that he couldn't even see her face, hidden as it was by the broad shoulders of the prosecutor. What Judge Marshall had once liked most about sitting on the bench was that he could take all the time in the world to make up his mind about most things. Send a man to jail for life? I'm giving it some thought. Call a mistrial and begin all over again at a cost of a couple hundred thousand dollars? I'll let you know. But of course, he didn't always have that luxury. Sometimes he had to make up his mind in a single instant. Now seemed to be such a time. What he decided was to keep his mouth shut. He hadn't tried to influence a witness in 40 years, not since his last day as a practicing lawyer, and he wasn't about to start now. The accused was led out of the court, and his relatives filed out too. Judge Marshall was the last one of the spectators to leave. Just as he got outside the door, he heard a familiar whisper. The door guard was standing there. He had a paper bag in his hand. Security sent this up to you, the man said proudly, like one who was pleased to offer impeccable service of some sort. They said you might be needing it. Mrs. Marshall's lunch! The judge took it. He reached out and shook the man's hand. In the old days, he would have said, Good man, or well done. These days, such remarks were considered patronizing. Thanks, he said to the guard. Thanks a lot. He took the lunch and walked slowly toward the down escalator. He thought the best thing was just to sit downstairs by the door for a while. 
For almost the whole of his career in this courthouse, there had been back door, side doors, and more than one front door to use as exits, but since 9-11 that had changed. Now there was only one exit. If his wife decided to go out or even to come looking for him, sitting by the exit was his best chance of seeing her or of her seeing him. But he didn't think that would happen. He figured that the lawyer would take her back to his office, the office of the prosecution in the secure area on the first floor, and that together they would somehow try to undo the damage she'd done to the case. Judge Marshall decided to wait for half an hour. Then he would go home. And if she wanted to explain what had happened, how she had made such a terrible mistake, then she could tell him. Otherwise, he would just keep his own peace. Concentrating as he was on these thoughts... He jumped when someone was suddenly standing in front of him, blocking the light from the exit's barred window that had been installed right after 9-11. It was 8.30. You and I have gone grocery shopping every Thursday at 8.30 since we moved into that condo. Plus, I probably would have checked my watch to make sure the store would still be open. If we did the same thing every week for years, Judge Marshall said, why would you need to check your watch? Besides, that store's 24-7, has been for five years. Don't talk to me like I have Alzheimer's, she said. The grim possibility had never occurred to the judge, but it did now. He looked at his wife. Nah, she had just made a simple mistake, that was all. Everybody's wrong once in a while, he said. Want some lunch? She glanced at the paper bag where he'd placed it on the seat. Why don't you sit down for a minute? He picked up the bag and patted the empty place beside him. Mrs. Marshall sank into the space. She'd always been a small woman. That was one of the things he loved about her. In the old days, he used to call her My Pocket Wife, the way he called his favorite book My Pocket Criminal Code. She seemed smaller than she'd ever been. No, he reminded himself, that was stupid. I told that lawyer right from the start that I was in that garage. He looked in all his papers, but he can't find where he wrote it down. He thinks I'm the one that made a mistake. He thinks he can still fix things if... She looked up at him. He could see she was fighting the urge to ask him for help. It's a good sandwich, he said. No onions. She accepted half the sandwich and took a bite. She chewed carefully, swallowed, shook her head. When people do the same thing every week of their lives, how can they make a mistake about what they did? Judge Marshall didn't answer. He was thinking about the Blaine case, the one that Mirko kid had worked on with him. He remembered there had been some sort of time mistake there, too. It wasn't that unusual for several witnesses to an event to give differing times for the same occurrence. One of the things that working in court for 50 years, heck, no, for 50 minutes, soon taught a person, was that eyewitnesses were often the worst kind. And the more eyewitnesses there were, the more conflicting stories might be told. In the Blaine case, Judge Marshall had seen a discrepancy right from the word go. Of course, it wouldn't have been his place to say anything to the witnesses, though he might have held some sort of a hearing with the lawyers if it had become necessary. 
But it hadn't been necessary. The erring witness had suddenly remembered that on the night in question she had been on the way to her sister's birthday party. An easy-to-remember event like that, the jury had believed her. The erroneous testimony had been rescinded. The record had been corrected. But what did that have to do with his wife? She was picking at her sandwich, as if she had no appetite. Something wrong with the sandwich, he asked? No. Not fresh enough? What? I used the lettuce we bought last night. Last night? Oh, come on, he said with mock impatience. Now are you going to tell me that you can't remember that we went grocery shopping last night? That's right, she said absently. It's Friday today. Thank God. Thank God? Yes, no matter what happens to me this afternoon, there won't be any court tomorrow. Nothing's going to happen to you this afternoon, he said. But it was a sort of lie, because at the very least there would be some sort of re-examination, and that would give the prosecutor plenty of time to grill his wife. You know, she said, all the years you worked in court, all the cases you tried. Yes. You never talked about them when you came home. So? Was she going to tell him that he should have shared his experiences so she could have learned how to be a better witness? That didn't make any kind of sense. So, I got used to thinking that you had this, I, 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 I don't know, this other life, like some sort of mystery existence or something. She stared into the air in front of her for a minute. Then she smiled. Judge Marshall felt a pang. The smile looked awfully sad. But the fact is, when you retired, I could figure out that you must have been the same way in court as you were at home. Meaning, he said, always doing the same thing at the same time. Routines. That's why we always shopped on Thursday. You said routine was important. You said if you do the same thing at the same time as often as you can, you... She stopped. Again, a look of shock crossed her face, but only for an instant. I remember, she said. What? I remember it wasn't 8.30 at all. It was 9.30. Judge Marshall popped the rest of his half of the sandwich into his mouth in order to avoid saying anything. You weren't with me because you were sick. When it got to be almost 8.30, I asked if you were ready to go, and you said you didn't think you could handle it. I told you I'd wait half an hour to see whether you might feel better, and I did wait. But by the time I got my cloth shopping bags together and checked with you to decipher the list you wrote in your terrible handwriting and found my own keys to the car, it was past nine. I remember that I thought it was great the way you didn't tell me it was too late to go out by myself. Judge Marshall laughed. But his wife became agitated again. How am I going to convince them? Of what? he asked. How can I make them believe me that this time I know what I'm talking about? He could have offered to speak to the prosecutor and offer himself as a witness. He could have told his wife about the great race, admitted that he'd not been as sick as he pretended to be. He could have quoted those cases he'd thought of up there in the courtroom when he'd realized she was making some kind of fool of herself. But he didn't. He hadn't worked in the courts for 50 years without realizing that justice, like every other game in town, is a crapshoot. 
Before she'd gotten into this mess, she'd told him to stay out of court when she was on the stand, because she knew that he could influence her, and even without his legal training, without his having told her year after year what he had been doing all those days in court, she had understood that it wasn't fair for her to use any recollection except her own. That hadn't changed. She was the witness, not him. And she was a cute little old lady. A jury who didn't believe her deserved to be responsible for letting a murderer go free. Judge Marshall reached into the paper bag on his lap. Look, he said, an apple. Let's share it. Like Adam and Eve, his wife said. No, he answered, like you and me. Every man for himself. The End I just want to take a moment to digest that story again. It's one that I loved when we first published it in 13 O'Clock, um, our May Dams of Mayhem anthology, with time and crime as the theme. Because the story is so incredibly poignant. And all of us who are aging, and even those of us who are young and may have aging parents or grandparents that we love, can relate to this story by Rosemary O'Bear. I want to thank Rosemary for bringing this uh, story about the inevitability of time and the uncertainty of justice. Please look for Rosemary O'Bear on Amazon. You are sure to fall in love with her work. Thanks also to today's author guest, Howard Levine, who wrote Last Gasp, a political thriller. And finally, our thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in each week to Dead to Rights. Please tell your friends. I know that Dead to Rights is a niche podcast, and it won't be for everyone, but we do our best to zero in on the topics and challenges that face the literary community, with a special view to both readers and writers. Are you a published crime writer? Would you like to be featured on Dead to Rights? We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and Carrick is C-A-R-R-I-C-K, and say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We're now scheduling for 2019, so reach out today. If you have questions related to the book industry for me, Donna, or for any of our featured authors, send me an email. Again, that address is carrickpublishing at rogers.com. You can also find us online. On Facebook, look for Donna Carrick, Alex Carrick, Dead to Rights, or Carrick Publishing. Don't forget to join our Facebook group, Excerpt Flight Deck, where we strive to bring readers and authors together. On Twitter, our handles are at Donna underscore Carrick, at Alex underscore Carrick, at Dead to Rights Pod, at Carrick Pub, or look for our close crime writing friends at at Maydam's Mayhem. All music featured on Dead to Rights, including our theme song, Eyes of Gold, is composed and performed by Ted Carrick. Learn more about his work at his YouTube channel, Ted Carrick Music. Be sure to tune in next week when the pod will feature author DJ McIntosh, that's Dorothy McIntosh, author of the critically acclaimed Mesopotamian trilogy, The Witch of Babylon, 
The Book of Stolen Tales, and The Angel of Eden, and I highly recommend those books by Dorothy McIntosh. Look for DJ McIntosh on Amazon or anywhere great books are sold. Join us, subscribe to the podcast, rate Dead to Rights, and please, once again, tell your friends. We want very much to support our authors, and we need your help to do it. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.